Well, good evening and welcome back tonight. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Alan Gotthard. I'm one of the pastors here at Sherwood. Uh, for those that do know me, um, when it comes to the things I'm interested in and the hobbies that I have, you know that I'm all over the map. And the reason for this is because, not because I like I have a bunch of hobbies, but really I'm just curious about a bunch of stuff. But the problem is that I also get bored really easily. So I don't ever stick with anything for very long that captures my attention. But one of the more recent things that has grabbed my attention is treasure. And more specifically, pirate's treasure. <laughs> and the reason for this, it all started a couple weeks ago. Me and my wife Ashley were sitting on the couch and we started talking about movies and Ashley said, I've never seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movie series. And I responded, like every guy who just assumes his wife has seen everything that I've ever seen, what? You've never seen them? Of course, so we had to start watching them. So we watched our way through all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I had to talk Ashley off the ledge from becoming a pirate, but <laughs> it got me interested in treasure. More specifically, it got me inter interested in pirate's treasure and what happened to it. And again, I know that I'm gonna lose interest in this in like two more days. So I'm not like, I'm not like planning a trip to go see a shipwreck or to start finding buried treasure. Uh, but I did actually buy a book about the golden age of piracy. And the more I started reading it, the less interested I got. <laughs> but, but, a couple of things did pique my interest. And one of the interesting things that I saw was a story about a guy named Henry Every, all right? And he is essentially the guy who kicks off the golden age of piracy, which was from like 1690 to 1730. So the book was worth it, I learned that. But Henry Every actually got into piracy, and really it was kind of a lucky story. He had gone from, becoming, from being a privateer to a pirate, don't ask me what that means, I didn't get that far in the book, but... <laughs> He had become a pirate, and he had kind of taken over a couple of vessels and hadn't really gotten much out of it, until one day he hit the jackpot when he came across a vessel called the Ganji Sawai. And this was a merchant vessel that was owned by the Mughal emperor, and it was a vessel that contained all kinds of jewels and precious metals and gems and coins, and they say that its value was worth over $95 million. So, he's hit the jackpot, all right? And the payout to the crew, they say, was worth well over a lifetime's worth of wages to every single crew member, all right? So among the pirate world, this was a huge haul. Because for most people, most pirates, being a pirate was not a very lucrative business. And I think what's funny is like, I never like put that together as a kid, because as a kid, I'm like, ooh, being a pirate, like freedom on the open seas and like, it was like, it was awesome. But then when you really think about it, you're like, this kind of sounds terrible. It's, you get scurvy and like, it's not good. But then I also thought about it and I was like, well, I mean, it kind of makes sense that most pirates didn't make a lot of money because why would there just be a bunch of ships going around with big chests full of gold coins and pearl necklaces? And so for most pirates, they didn't make a whole lot of money at this endeavor, all right? But what they would find was actually kind of a huge hassle. They would find cargo when they'd take over ships like, raw tobacco leaves and cotton and like they had to then go to this pirate friendly port and sell it for way less than it was worth because they stole it like 
It was really a mess. You didn't make a whole lot of money being a pirate. But they were always on the hunt for the treasure because they knew the stories of Henry Every. They knew the stories of the others who had hit it big. And so they were always on this hunt for the ultimate treasure, the one that they could get that would satisfy them forever, that they could quit piracy and live a life of luxury. They just had to find that one treasure chest that would get it all for them. And so most of them spent their whole life looking for this, and most of them gave their life looking for this. And the irony of the book I was reading was it was written by a guy who had devoted his entire life to finding pirate ships and their buried treasure. And so his whole adult life had been consumed by this insatiable desire to find shipwrecked pirate ships and see if there was treasure on them. He's just like the pirates. And the people he wrote about that are in this book are also just like the pirates. They spent their whole lives looking for this treasure so that they could have their name written in history. But even closer to home, I realized that not much has changed in our society since then. This is the same thing that a lot of us do without even realizing it. We just exchange buried treasure for our stuff, right? We just, all of a sudden, our, our time and our thoughts and everything is consumed by getting that next promotion or by making sure our kids get into the school they want to get into or, or saving up for the next new thing or being seen as successful. And tons of other things become this ultimate treasure in our life, even if it's just for a season. And we can become consumed by these things. And next thing we know, we're spending all of our free time thinking about this treasure. And we make sacrifices to accomplish this treasure. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that ambition is bad. I'm not saying that the things we seek are bad. These are often good things to seek and strive for, and it's good to seek and strive for things. But when they become the ultimate thing in our life, and everything that we do revolves around the, the accomplishing and the attaining of these treasures, we see everything through the lens of the treasure. We make decisions about the future and about our family through the lens of the treasure. And the problem is that the joy and the satisfaction that we think is at the end of attaining this ultimate treasure, this thing that we desire most, is that it's always going to be insufficient to satisfy us. It'll always be insufficient to satisfy if our compass is on the wrong treasure. The pleasures and the accomplishments of this life will fade faster than we hope. For those things that we have accomplished, those who have set out to accomplish a treasure, I'm sure you've realized it. It wasn't as great as you thought it would be when you got it. Not that it wasn't good, but it just didn't satisfy as long as you hoped it would didn't last as long as you hoped it would. The joy you got from it wasn't as big as you wish it was. And a lot of us have experienced this. You work really hard for something and you finally get it and it just, it's cool. Like you got it, nice. But it just doesn't last the way you hoped it would last. So what do we do? We move on to the next thing, right? We accomplish that, so now we gotta move on. And something else becomes this new ultimate treasure in our life. And this isn't malicious, we're not bad people for desiring to accomplish things, but what we are and what humanity is, is misguided by our nature. We seek treasure, we seek pleasure, we seek joy, because we're created to do that. It's our default setting, and it's a good default setting, right? Our natural impulse is to seek satisfaction, 
The problem is that our sin corrupts that. And it keeps our minds from seeing where ultimate satisfaction is going to be found. And so tonight, my one goal for tonight is to convince you of this simple truth. That true joy is found in seeking the right treasure. True joy is found in seeking the right treasure. And my prayer is that by the end of tonight, you'll see that to be completely satisfied, to find true joy, more, we have, what we have to have is to have to be more in love, more desiring, treasuring most this one thing, and it has to be God. So if you have your Bibles tonight, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. So we'll read it together. It says this. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that tonight, Lord, our hearts are so much more closely aligned with yours. God, I pray that I don't even leave this stage without falling more in love with you. Lord, I pray that you see our hearts tonight. God, I pray that we are exposed tonight to see what we treasure most. I pray that it's you. In your name, amen. Now, if you're like me, sometimes we can read the Psalms and it gets a little intimidating. And I think it's so intimidating because it's so extreme, right? David, who writes the majority of these Psalms, is a pretty emotional dude. And sometimes what he writes seems pretty hard to live up to. For example, Psalm 35, 28 says, my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. That's a long time. Psalm 6.6 6 says, I'm, we I'm wearing, weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. That is a lot of crying. <laughs> Psalm 124.2 says, if, I, if it had not been for the Lord, they would have swallowed us alive. That's a tough day. <laughs> right? And even in this very chapter, we see it in chapter 16. Verse 2 says, I have no good apart from you. That's a pretty weighty statement. Right? Psalm, verse 4, he says, I will not even take the names of the evil on my lips. He's not even going to say their name. Right? Like, that's, it's extreme. All right? He wears his heart on his sleeve. But David lived them. This was his life, right? He continually said the Lord at his, before him and at his right hand. We see that in this verse. God was his treasure. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love, Psalm 90, 14. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, 11. David holds God to be his ultimate and truest treasure. He's what he seeks when he wakes up. He's what he thinks about when he lies down. And this doesn't neglect the reality that, yes, he's writing poetry. These are psalms, right? Right? But if scripture is breathed out by God, which it is, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, then we can't just gloss over psalms as pretty words. 
They are the life that David lived. These are the words he sang to God because it was his life. And these words show us where our heart has to be too. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also, Luke 12, 34. So this takes us back to our key concept tonight, that true joy is found in seeking the right treasure. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through not only why God should be our treasure, but then how do we make God our treasure? So we'll start with the first thing we see in this passage, and it's an action that David does. The very first thing David does is he sets, he sets the Lord before him. He said he always sets the Lord before him. He's put the Lord at his right hand. So another way to translate the word before me in Hebrew is like in front of my face. So David is saying that he always continuously sets the Lord as the thing in front of him that he sees. This is the same as saying that God is the only thing he sets his eyes on. God is the ultimate prize. And this is huge because he constantly is fixing his eyes on the Lord and God is what he sees, but he's also what he strives for. He's the beginning of the journey. He's also the destination. And so what this means is that David also has to see everything else through God. Think about the kind of perspective that that gives. How would our perspective change if we looked at everything through God, our treasure? It definitely changed everything about the way that David saw his circumstances, right? We see in Psalm 37, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. So even in David's distress, as the wicked pursues him, his eyes are set on God. His, he's always set him before his face, and he knows that it's God who's going to deliver him. He didn't have to worry about the wicked that are chasing him. And think about this for our own lives. How would this change our perspective if after being let go from work or after not getting into the school that we wanted to get into or after a friend stabs us in the back? Imagine the kind of perspective we would have if we didn't treasure success or wealth or pleasing others as the ultimate thing in our life. If we saw, I'm not saying those things are good. You don't see those things as awesome now. But there's better perspective because God is the treasure. So, with God as our ultimate treasure, we have to view everything in light of him being our treasure. But David didn't stop there. Not only was David setting God before his face, but God was also who he set at his right hand, which is like a weird statement, but we see it all the time in Psalms. But what it means is that God was not only David's prize, but he was also his protection. When he says he set him at his right hand, he says, I will not be shaken. He knows that, that with God next to him, he was all the comfort that he needed. He goes on to say, therefore, my heart is glad. When we see the word therefore, we should be asking, what is it there for? So this is a context question, right? David is pointing back to what we just read. He said that, that God is set always before him and at his right hand. He's his prize. He's his protection. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Because God is David's treasure, because God has been put in the place of prominence in David's life, he's now glad. His whole being rejoices. And the word whole being is kind of this tricky word in Hebrew. It can mean like, like your whole being. It can also mean your tongue. It can also mean your glory. And so really it is his everything sings praise and rejoices and is glad. 
Either way, though, everything within David is filled with gladness and joy because of what he has as his treasure. He even goes as far as to say that his soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. He is so secure in his love and his devotion to God and God's love and devotion to him that he, that he knows that the closeness and the intimacy that he experiences him will not even be severed by death. His soul will not be abandoned. And you guys, this is what a life that seeks God as our treasure can look like. David was not meant to be an anomaly. He doesn't have a faith that is unattainable to us. He's actually given to us as an example of what this faith should look like. These are the words we should also be able to shout when God is our ultimate treasure. And this is so fresh for me. I'm literally learning this right now. This, start, this is a journey that started for me about three months ago. I was listening to a message that John Piper preached. And as he was preaching, for those of that are familiar with John Piper, as he talks, you can just feel the love of God drip out of his mouth. You can just feel this overwhelming, all-consuming love for God. He lives in the scripture. He pursues God with this fervency and with this rarity that's so apparent when he talks. And as I was listening to this message, I don't even remember what it was on, I was so convicted because I sat there and I listened and I thought, man, I do not love God like that. I sat there and I listened to him and I thought, man, I don't pursue God like that. I don't treasure God like that. And I started to really pray through, what does that mean? What does it mean to treasure God, to love God like that? Because there are moments, and I think there are seasons in my life when I feel like God is my treasure. I go, I go through bursts where God is my treasure, but I don't live in that reality all the time. And so, my relentless journey has been over the past couple of months to understand how to love God more. How do I fall madly in love with my creator? How do I set him as the ultimate treasure and prize of my life? How can I treasure God more? You should just ask Tim. He's probably so tired of me sitting in his office trying to flesh this out because I've literally been thinking about this nonstop because I, I have to understand because it's attainable. It's clearly possible. David had it. The Apostle Paul had it. The church fathers had it. Mentors and other pastors in my life, they have this. So it's possible. And so these last couple of months has been this radical pursuit that I've tried to figure out, God, how can I love you more? But for Christ to be my treasure, I have found that I can't let myself be distracted by things that take my focus away from God always being set before me, from making God my treasure. Even when, even the good things can become bad things when we let them become ultimate things. They can muddy the waters of our hearts to keep us from seeing the treasure which should be God. And what I have realized is that I am constantly distracted but I've begun to see that God stands before me as literal life. And he offers me more than I could ever imagine. Yet I constantly turn and I look for other things to satisfy me as if he's not gonna be enough. 
But verse 11 literally tells me that in his presence is the fullness of joy. It's in his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. And so why do I waste my time worrying about and fighting for and pining after things that won't ultimately satisfy me? Think about it like getting a glass of water at your house. You go to the sink and you turn it on and you fill up your cup. You can go like all the way to the rim, right, if you've got your own cup. You can overflow a cup if you want. I don't know what you do at your house. But you can fill this cup all the way to the top at your own house with your own cup with the sink. So full that it's hard to carry, right? Think about this cup as the joy and the pleasures that are found in the fullness of God. His word says that it's in his presence that we're offered the fullness and the pleasures forevermore. But now think about every water bottle you've ever bought, whether it's the 24-pack, the 48-pack, the gas station bottle. Every single one of them's not full, right? There's a little gap between like the top of the water and the top of the bottle. Chips are even worse. You open it up and like only a third of it's full. (laughs) Right, this is life though. This is life. There's nothing that it can offer you that's the same as the fullness of joy that's found in his presence and the pleasures that are forevermore that are at his right hand. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3 says this. It says, like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, there should be a sense of longing, a sense of desire for something different, something to satisfy this new thirst that comes from having tasted that the Lord is good. But if you have your sights set on a different treasure, or if you put something else as this new ultimate goal in your life, you'll miss out on the fullness of joy that can be found in his presence. It's like in horse racing. I don't know anything about horse racing, but, <laughs> but I did learn some stuff this year. This was another one of my like, pleasure, or like, things that I just decided I was going to get into for two seconds. <laughs> at the Kentucky Derby, which just happened, at the Kentucky Derby... Uh, I actually got a chance to go and tour Churchill Downs where it happens. I was in Louisville earlier this year. All right? And when they're racing horses, they put these blinders on them. And I don't know anything about horses, but I'll tell you what I do know. Apparently, horses have this absurd peripheral vision because, like, their eyes are, like, on the side of their head. So, like, (laughs) they can see everything, like, all the way to the right, all the way to the left, right? But they have this weird blind spot right in front of them. It's super weird. So they put these blinders on them, though, because as they're racing, you've got, like, horses right next to you, and that's distracting. So they put these blinders on them so that they're easier to race because you're focused. They're focused on what's ahead of them. And we face a similar problem, or at least I do. I get distracted by the things that are on the right and to the left, and I have to have God constantly before my face and constantly at my right hand because he has to be the prize and the blinders. He has to keep me from being distracted so that he can block out all the things that aren't him. But then there's another problem that some of us face when it comes to making God our ultimate treasure. And this is the problem of unbelief. We can say the right answer. We can say that we know that we should make God our ultimate treasure. We can say that we believe that at his right hand are the pleasures forevermore, but we don't actually believe it. 
and we definitely don't live like it's true. We continue to pursue other things more intensely than God. Here's the reality. If God is what I truly have as my treasure, I don't run away from him to seek the things I really want. He is what I have to really want. I have to turn away from all of those to see the things I really want, which is him. It has to be Christ. When will I see God as better? I have to see him as better, better than even good things, better than comfort, better than family, better than my job. He has to be better than all of that for him to be my treasure. An argument that gets thrown at this a lot, especially in our affluent American society, and it's one that actually just came up a couple weeks ago in our young adult group as we were talking, and a, and a dude asked me, he said this, he said, what do I say to my friend who says he doesn't need God? Life is going well, I have all that I want, why do I need God? And other people may ask this question a little more subtly, saying, Alan, that's easy to hold on to. This is easy to hold on to when you don't have anything. When I don't have success, when I don't have money, when I have something I just need to hope in, but when I have those things, where's my need? And here's how God's word responds to that. If God's word is true, which I believe it is, and his word can be trusted, which I believe it can, if it's profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, for correction, for rebuke, then I know that based on the passage that we've been in all night, that if in God's presence there's the fullness of joy, and at his right hand are the pleasures forevermore, then everything else is store-bought water. Everything else is not enough. It, if it's not the fullness, if it's not the cup we overflowed at our house, there's a gap. It doesn't matter how good it may seem in the moment, it'll always be less than the fullness of God that's offered in his presence. It'll always be less than the infinite pleasures that are at his right hand. I don't have to try something to know that it won't satisfy me. His word tells me it won't satisfy me. So why do I waste my time when today I can be making him my treasure? The problem is not in seeking treasure, it's in seeking the wrong one. C.S. Lewis said it in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when the fullness of joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Nothing else will satisfy. It doesn't matter how good it feels in the moment. It can't offer the fullness of joy that's only found in the presence of God. But this is where it gets tricky because we may acknowledge that this is true. We can acknowledge that yes, in God's presence is where the fullness of joy is, but how do I make him my treasure? And this is where I have been sitting for the last three months. How do we make him our treasure? How do I love God more? How do I fall more deeply in love with the God of the universe? And there are, some, there are three things that the Lord has shown me over this journey. And these truths are not unique to me, but they have had a profound impact on treasuring God in my life. The first one is this. 
It doesn't happen on accident. I won't just wake up one day and treasure God as the ultimate thing in my life. It doesn't just happen by getting older. It doesn't happen by just attending church. It happens like David says in verse 8, by setting the Lord always before me. What this looks like for me is that when I wake up, I've begun to ask God this simple prayer every single day. I say, Lord, teach me to treasure you more today. Teach me to fall more madly in love with you today. I pray that I would desire God more than I would desire anything else today. I ask him to make me so satisfied in him that I could lose everything else and still treasure him more. Because if I don't constantly reorient myself to placing God always before me, I will get distracted by so many other things in my day. It comes through constant course correction. When I sense my heart drifting away during the day, I pray that the Lord reminds me to bring him back into his presence and set him before me. When my attitude becomes discouraging, I pray that the Lord reminds me that in his presence is the fullness of joy. It requires a constant reorienting of yourself to treasure God more than anything else. I have to do this all day long. But I have found that when I get to the end of the day and I reflect on the day, I have found that I love him more at the end of the day than when I started. The second thing is this. It's just like Paul mentioned in his message this morning that habitual sin is death to a depth in prayer. The same is true for treasuring God. What God has been teaching me is that obedience breeds intimacy. If you want to fall more in love with God, it starts by doing what he tells me to do. And it's not because that doing what he tells me to do earns love from God or by not doing it, he loves me any less. But it's because in obedience, I flourish the most in God's desire for me. If sin separates me from God and my ultimate joy and satisfaction comes from being in his presence, then I want to remove anything in my life that separates me from my treasure. An example of that in my life that God has been working out so clearly is in the area of stress and anxiety for me. We work really hard here at the church. There are a lot of responsibilities. And you all know who my uncle is, so hard working is in the gene pool. We love some good hard work. But I often find myself carrying around this weight of burden, of stress and anxiety over the areas of my life that I'm responsible for whether that's here at the church or over my family at home. But God's word says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If that is true, and I'm carrying around a weight of stress and anxiety, then I haven't yet cast my burdens on the Lord like he tells me to and picked up his light and easy yoke. But when I'm obedient and when I do cast my burdens onto him and I spend my day carrying the load of my Lord, I value him even more as my treasure because I see his faithfulness in it when it's light. And when I'm obedient and I see, continue to God be, see God continue to be faithful like he always is, I just learn to love him more. I learn to trust him more and ultimately I learn to treasure him more when I find him to be true in all that he asks me to do. So obedience breeds an intimacy that leads me to treasure God more. 
And habitual sin or sin at all is death to my intimacy with Christ and treasuring him. And then lastly, God has really been teaching me that nothing else satisfies. This is something I have to constantly remind myself because like I mentioned, I get distracted. I'm, I, I like my shiny things. I pine after things that don't matter that I want to satisfy me but I know ultimately won't. I have to constantly remind myself that the fullness of joy only comes in his presence, that the pleasures forevermore only come at his right hand. There's nothing else that I can long for, work for, seek for that will satisfy me like my Savior will. This is new for me. I'm walking through this right now. But God has been absolutely rocking my world with showing me the depths of intimacy that you could find if he's your treasure. You can just ask my wife how many times I've kept her up at night sitting in our bed just talking about it. She's like, I want to go to sleep. But I'm like, I got to talk about it. (laughs) Clearly, I'm an external processor. But I have found that he doesn't want just part of my heart. He wants to be my treasure. Paul mentioned this morning that when the Lord corrects us, it's not in condemnation. And I have realized that as the Lord began convicting me of this a couple of months ago, he was saying, Alan, I'm not your treasure, but I'll show you how deep you can go with me if you'll try. I felt like he was nudging me saying, Alan, you don't love me enough, but I will show you what depths there are if you try. And he has been so faithful. And so as we wrap up tonight, I just want to leave you with that key concept we started with at the beginning. True joy is found in seeking the right treasure. Are we seeking the right treasure? Is God my treasure? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are good. Lord, all of my joy can be found in your presence. Lord, and if that's true, why do I waste time with things that won't satisfy me? God, I pray that none of us here leave today loving you the same as when we walked in. God, I pray that we all fell more in love with you just by reading your word just now. Not through anything I said, but Lord, by your word being proclaimed and the truth that is in scripture regardless of the message. Lord, I want to fall more in love with you. I pray you'll take us all there in your name. Amen.